Well, thanks everyone for coming. Did not expect as many people, so this is quite nice. Um, so, Daniela is here to give a lecture later today in the department, and we figured let's use the opportunity to have a bit of a chat beforehand and talk a bit about your work and yeah, just see where it goes. I have a few points which broad themes that we outlined. Don't worry, Toby, your point is in there. And I sent you an email about it, mm -hmm. a few points. Um, so we can kind of start with that and then people can feed in their own questions and you can see where it goes. Um, Before we start, can I get a sense of what you work on? Uh, each one of you, so uh, I have a sense of why there are so many. I'm very, I'm very excited. There are so many people in the room because uh, macro finance is not. Uh, it, it didn't used to be very exciting for for most people, but I guess it's becoming. Okay, shall I say the same? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so I I started my as you were academic career with a PhD on. Central banking. Uh, so I know I know where you come from. <laughs> uh, I looked at the way in which the Central Bank of Romania, uh, the the political role of the central, the political economy of the Central Bank of Romania in the transition from whatever central centrally planned economy to a market economy, uh, and that evolved into a PhD on financialization and central banking and the role of central banks in the financialization not only of I mean, I, the housing market wasn't very relevant then, but of the various market segments uh, that are relevant for monetary policy implementation and then the, the way in which it's, it's shaped by global finance, basically. And since then, uh, so after I did my PhD, I started, I realized that uh, working on Romania is uh, very interesting for a Romanian, but uh, not for many other people, unfortunately. Uh, so I kind of shifted towards uh, studying uh, the European Central Bank uh, and the way in which a new market, well, what I thought was a new market wasn't that new, uh, the, uh, a new market called the repo market becomes very important in the political economy of the relationship between the state uh, in its fiscal arm and the central bank, and then to the broader political economy of, of the Eurozone macro architecture. So then that became a uh, research agenda on shadow banking because uh, the Financial Stability Board decided to include it in to include the repo market in, in the sort of definition of, of shadow banking. And uh, my advice would be, I mean, this, is a, this was a strategic, in some ways, a strategic decision that I took then to kind of move towards shadow banking because everybody was talking about shadow banking and it's a, it used to be, it still is, but the politics has changed a bit, but it used to be a very sort of sexy concept and, and it's easier for political economists, particularly coming from economics, right, because I'm... I'm I'm in an economics department. I, I did, uh, I identified myself as a political economist with the accent on the economist. Uh, it was a, a strategic decision to go that, down that route in terms of career choices. Let's put it this way. I'm also very, I was very interested in it. I'm, I'm a geek of finance, uh, so yeah, it worked well. And then since, with that came uh, this idea of doing, uh, <coughs> of sort of trying to think about a an analytical approach that is called ma critical macrofinance. Um, it's kind of it's in infancy, let's put it this way. Uh, uh, but there are more and more people who are starting to think that there is some value in, in calling it critical macrofinance. And I guess the fact that Adam Tooze has uh, um, embraced it uh, helps a lot uh, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a cause <laughs> internationally. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, I was wondering how you would define macrofinance and what's the critical element of it. Right, mm. Because microfinance, basically based on Adam Tooze's description, mm -hmm. come from policy-making communities like BIS and Defense. Mm. Um, this idea about looking at global banks and interlocking balance sheets and these mm -hmm. connections rather than the national economy, right? Mm. Um, so it gives us a different kind of map of the economy, I guess. Mm -hmm. One which is also transnational, right? There's a big emphasis on cross-border flows and all this. Yeah. And what is the critical element, right, that political economy adds to Hmm, that's a good question. So I would say, so the way in which I came towards the concept of macrofinance and particularly thinking about finance in general is uh, through the critique that we had in the, uh, after the, the global, global financial crisis, we had a critique coming from uh, basically within the inside of, of mainstream macro 
economics uh, that said, look, uh, you guys uh, have designed the dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models that central banks are using, and these models do not have finance in them, and that's a problem because uh, we discovered that finance is uh, the kind of finance that Hyman Minsky used to think of, right? So I come from a theoretical tradition that go, come, starts, I guess, with Keynes uh, and then goes through Hyman Minsky, then extends into... Uh, I would say Perry Merling and the, the INET school of, of shadow banking, right? So, uh, the, why does the word critical, what does the word critical do there for me is that if you look at the way in which uh, financial economists, I think it's very useful to read, I, I read a lot of financial economics, because there are some very useful ways of, of theorizing and conceptualizing how finance works at a sort of, in the, the way in which modern finance has evolved structurally, right? But there is no attempt to connect this to sort of broader questions of what does it mean in terms of the political economy of, the, of central banks, in terms of the political economy of, of um, macroeconomic models, in terms of the political economy of the state. And I think this is this idea <clears throat> that the state has to per perform very different roles in a, an economy where uh, finance is, is globalized, where uh, relationships between actors and between balance sheets, and this idea of interlock balance sheets for me is important in, in the macrofinance, um, is, yeah, this is where the critical ele element com comes into, just sort of asking more political economic questions of, okay, so what does this mean that you have, I don't know, the specific ways in which shadow banking creates crisis in, in the economy, and, and those specific ways then affect the, the state. Uh, so the critical is more of a, you could call it political economy macrofinance, but uh, you don't need to, so you call it critical macrofinance because it, it asks polit questions of political economy. Who benefits? Why? What does it take? What kind of political coalitions? So I'm anticipating a bit what I'm going to say later today, but what kind of political coalitions are necessary to sustain a particular mode of, of, um, of financial-led accumulation, I would say, uh, that we have now? Uh, that, to me, is the more the more critical question, and, and it's uh, also, I remember that Perry Merling said this on, on, on Twitter recently, that, uh, that in a sense, thinking about critical macrofinance is a way of putting politics into the money view that, that he has, right? The money view which says monetary relationships are very important, we have to understand how they evolve structurally because of uh, changes in global finance, in, 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 the, in the global politics of macroeconomic regimes, etc., etc., yeah, I was um, curious about that as well, essentially the relationship between money view mm. and macrofinance, right, which you already slightly answered by saying it adds the politics probably broader perspective, right? The money mm. view, the way I understand it, is mostly Perry Merling's brainchild, right? Yes. So, and, and macrofinance is probably people working in that broader tradition, mm. but not subscribing to his school as such, but say, even though there are similarities, right? Like, mm. for example, balance sheets is a kind of heuristic tool, so unit mm -hmm. of analysis. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's translated from the money view into macrofinance, or actually how does the relationship work? We want to write a history of critical macrofinance. Well, I would say that, uh, I mean, the tradition of looking at interlock balances does not start with the money view. Um, sure, yeah. It becomes popularized by the... This, it, it's there in, in Minsk, it's there in, in other spaces, but I think in a sense it becomes more popular, popularized by, by the money view, precisely because the money view is not only Perry Merling. I think what is interesting to me there is a combination of Perry Merling and Zoltan Poshar, mm. and it's like never-ending trillions of balance sheets following, following each other, and, and it's a way of tracing, tracing the money, right? Uh, in a sense, through the balance sheets of the different kinds of uh, financial and non-financial actors. Um, I think that's also what gave the potency, right? This combination mm. of money and posture, because that yes. essentially gave them a, a way in into policy making circles, right? Mm. Um, well, what gave it, I mean, there are, I think, in a sense, we also have to think about it, and this is something that you in this room would probably be better placed to respond than me, it's like uh, uh, the politics of, of ideational change, right? So it's not only that, in a sense, the money view. Uh, became uh, influential at uh, at the point at the point in time when people were interested, where, where people were recognizing that there, are, there is financial innovation in the system that is systemic, that is systemic not only for the way in which finance operates, but the way in which macroeconomic relationships and and political economy relationships are are, are evolving. Uh, but it, 
it's, it wasn't only the INET and the, the money view, but for example, something that <clears throat> Central Bank of England is a who was doing Bank of, who's studying Bank of England? So Bank of England was really interesting because Bank of England in 2014 puts out a paper where it says something that people from my school of, of economic thinking, which is post Keynesianism, have been saying for 30 years. Money is endogenous. But Bank of England says that, and it does it with balance sheets, and it shows how they evolve, and, and in a sense, it kind of validates this heuristic of, of if we look at balance sheets, then we will understand better uh, how money is created, uh, what is the role of the central bank. We can diffuse criticisms about whatever, QE or other types of measures that we, we decided to introduce. Um, so it's, it's not only... It's not only the money viewer, it's not only INET sort of moving into that direction, but from, I, th I think, from various angles and from the policy world as well. The BIS is, is kind of doing the same, more or less, um, although I'm not sure that there is an internal consensus on, on how do you do balance sheets uh, and what do you show them. Yeah, but it's interesting, the same as the papers by the BIS or the one from Bank of England, they're very readable as well. Mm. So in the balance sheet perspective, lends itself to that, right? You don't need an understanding of mathematics and economics, mm. economic models necessarily to make sense of these relationships, right? Mm. And and I think so it's also a good kind of a good way to establish trust in the policy making progress to process to some extent maybe, right? Like mm. you can address the public with that kind of image because yeah. Yeah, that, I think Douglas Holmes has a book on the communicative practices of, of central banks, which I thought, it's very interesting. It's a very anthropological book. Uh, and I heard somebody joking that uh, Douglas fell in love with the, central, with the tribe that he was studying. And uh, that book would have been more critical, but I think it was a, it's a brilliant book. Uh, but yes, I th this is part of, of, for example, to me, critical macrofinance helps us understand why is it the central banks, uh, although they have been that they presided over a systemic crisis of global finance, they managed to somehow defend the legitimacy of their inflation targeting mandate and to expand that mandate into all sorts of really weird directions, uh, not including the market maker of last resort, which to me is the single most important change in, in the toolkit of central banks that we have seen. And it's, uh, and it's evolving and it's being adopted. So Bank of England is a good example of being able to formalize that institutionally. Um, Shall I say what market maker of last resort is? Uh, market maker of last resort means uh, central banks basically buy uh, certain securities in certain conditions, which before it was it was in in the political economy of the central bank that was impossible. You were only buying government bonds and you were only buying them for very specific reasons that had to do with the movement of the interest rate um, in the short-term interbank money market, where the central bank implements its monetary policy decisions. So we move from very that very restrictive set of ideas about how you do central banking to now uh, the BIS is calling for a market maker, not of last resort, but a, a systemic market maker role for, not the BIS, a, a research paper, and we know institutional pathologies are complicated, but the fact that somebody, that the politics of, uh, of the central bank or, or the organized, uh, umbrella organization of central banks, uh, somebody in there said you can publish this paper that says countries should intervene systematically in securities markets. Uh, that to me suggests that um, things are changing very rapidly in the world of central banking, that the imperative of communicating with the public is also changing. And it's interesting for me that they chose central banks as an imperative to communicate, maybe because, I mean, I don't know, maybe you can also, you can find out why they decided to, to, to communicate with the public through balance sheets. Uh, when they said something that we, we a small uh, part of the, uh, academic economists, we've, we've been saying this for a very long time. Um, Nicolas Cardo was saying this in the 1960s. There were various commissions in the 1960s, 50s and 60s, they were debating this, and it was very clear that this is the case, but you know, it's like, uh, in a sense, policy making doesn't evolve, ideationally, doesn't evolve in a straight line that just is, a, is an incremental improvement. So yeah, I would say, um, I mean, I don't have an answer of why the Bank of England decided this, but to me, it was a, a very useful uh, decision in some ways. Mm. Yeah, they're kind of pushing it further, right? Which is also kind of their thing. They tend to pioneer things, I guess, because the Fed has been way more cautious about being a non-emergency mm. market maker last resort. Right? Mm. I mean, they've introduced 
facilities, in the repo market and so on, but they use it more essentially as a one-sided dealer maybe to take out. So, this is the kind of question, yes, this is the kind of question that critical microfinance would try to answer is what, what are the, the, what is the politics of institutionalizing or formalizing institutional change? Yeah. And I asked the Federal Reserve um, uh, staff, particularly the ones who are the, the repo market gigs, there are a couple there, and they asked them and they told me we cannot do anything formally because the, we have to go to Congress, and the moment we go to Congress, you have libertarians shouting down with the Fed, and we do not want to open a conversation in the Congress on the mandate of the Federal Reserve, so we'd rather do things differently, whereas the, the political question here in the UK doesn't exist. Like the, the, Bank of, the Bank of England can, I think, can basically do more or less whatever it wants, particularly on, on the macrofinance side. They can't go around saying our Brexit predictions or X or Y or Z, because that's a subject of much more significant political contestation than, than operating changes that are still very poorly understood, right? Like I, have to, I have debates with my colleagues who are from the same Poskensian school about the significance of the market maker of last resort. To me, it's very important. It's very important because it, it, it sort of... It's an, the, it's an evolving institutional framework for the way in which modern financial systems operate. Modern financial systems are very different from what we, had, what we have in textbooks, for sure, and what we had 20 or 30 years ago. And we are moving into the direction much, much faster in, in towards organizing uh, financial systems around securities markets. And this is why I very much look forward to reading your thesis, uh, because you're looking at the, at the corner of, of this new universe that nobody really knows very much about and, or is that interested yet, uh, exa except for central bankers. Um, and, yeah. yeah, but this is um, the question of mandate of the central bank, for example, is, is quite interesting in the sense that they have quite a lot of independence in a way, though clearly defined, essentially, mm. in the mandate. And in a way, post-crisis governance has relied a lot on them pushing the boundaries of their mandates, right, but while being confined by the Fed, for example, by mm -hmm. congressional um, provisions. And there was a tweet you did last week, I think, where you picked up on Adam Tooze's block, right? Uh -huh. where he essentially defines something. Financial governance post-crisis has come to rely on an unmediated relationship between national central banks, global regulators, and an oligopolistic cluster of giant transnational banks. Mm. Right? And, and that's also problematic, right, mm. in many ways, right? Mm. Because you have central banks essentially trying to manage the system mm. through balance sheets of big banks, giving them power, mm. making them reliant on the performance of these banks, mm. right? So, you know, to what extent should macrofinance maybe point out the limits of this form of monetary governance, right, and mm. move it back, maybe? So, yeah, so that, the story of that tweet, and this is a, this is a very new world where we are discussing <laughs> the, the tweets that we did, uh, but... I mean, you should have anticipated it. Yes, I guess. I should be tweeting about this just now. Uh, so the, the, I forgot to mention at the beginning that I am writing a, a book on shadow money, right? So this, was, this has been for a while now my, my project, this idea that within financial systems that are organized around securities markets, you have new types of money. Functionally, new types of money are required because um, uh, of structural features of the system. And part of that book uh, is a, a chapter on the idea of monetary time, or how do we think about time in relationship to money, right? Uh, and for that, I've been reading a lot on the ways in which the U.S. financial system operated in the 19th century and early 20th century, uh, because, uh, to my surprise, uh, we haven't invented very much uh, in the last 30 years, and when, what we had we had then, we have now, including a repo market. I, I was very excited. Uh, we had a, in the late 18th, 19th century, we had a repo market that functioned exactly like uh, it functions now without any of the technology, so it's fascinating. Uh, and it's a repo market that, that sort of shrank monetary time to the day, even if it doesn't look like that. This is the, the story that I'm developing. And it turns out that the 1929 crisis was a crisis of leverage finance through the repo market. So you can tell a repo market story. And my, the question to me then, so if you think what happened, 1929, you have a very big crisis. 
Then in 1933, you have Roosevelt winning the elections and coming with a very repressive regulatory agenda. This is not about kind of incrementally changing the system like we had since 2008. We have uh, uh, rules that say uh, kill the repo market, uh, separate uh, uh, retail from investment banking, destroy destroy basically the system that we have structured, right? This is what to me then uh, Roosevelt administration does. So to me, so then I was thinking about uh, Adam's tweet within that context and asking myself, why is it that this was possible in 1933 and it was not possible in 2008? So what what is missing from from the from the constellation of political actors there, and what is what is missing to me in 1933 is a central bank that is prepared to push its mandate. Uh, I don't think I wouldn't call it pushing its mandate. I think uh, central, there is a, a very strange contradiction in in the politics of central banks now because the institutional pathology of an inflation targeting model. Uh, says the central bank uh, or, or in, encourages central banks to not want to do more than inflation targeting because if you're politically accountable only for reaching your inflation target and only for moving the interest rate, then you can say, hey guys, I'm depoliticized, I don't know what you're fighting about, this is not my problem, I'm just going to change the interest rate and thank you very much, bye. But the moment you try to expand the mandate, and it, it's very interesting to me now that for example, Richard Clarida, who is a mainstream DSG modeling economist, uh, has started to talk about inflation targeting as a, uh, uh, a framework whereby central banks are waging wars against the working class. From where? I don't know. And then now he's at the Federal Reserve, right? So the discourse of central banks is shifting very rapidly. There are pressures for the mandate to expand. But I can see from the experience of various central banks that they do not want to do that because it's very comfortable politically to have a, a one instrument, one target uh, kind of approach, right? Uh, but what we had fun fundamentally different in, 19, in, the, in the first crisis of financial capitalism, and this is how I would call 1929, the first crisis of financial capitalism, what we had different there in terms of the politics is first that the Federal Reserve was much, strong, much more strongly captured by, by private banking, by private finance, particularly global finance. And, and I've been reading this book uh, on, uh, on the PECORA investigation. So we end up, the story is, with the 1933 uh, legislation introduced by Roosevelt against uh, market-based banking by virtue of an inquiry led by this Italian ethnic lawyer in the U.S. Uh, called Pecora, who manages to somehow put on the spot the, the single most important, the, 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 president of, the president of the single most important bank in the U.S. at the time, uh, what, what now is Citibank, then it was First National. And within two weeks, uh, this Pecora uh, lawyer manages to demonstrate how fundamentally corrupt, corrupt the bank is, the system is, uh, how much it sort of serves only the interests of... Um, of financial capital, and he does it in public. It's like the, the story is, is, is amazing to, to my mind because it's like millions of people in the U.S. reading the, the reports on the Pecora Committee. How many people know the details of the Volcker uh, uh, investigation? Uh, and, and so Charles Mitchell, who was the president of this uh, bank that somehow uh, sort of forced prey to, to this investigation, he was a, a one of the um, he was on the board of the Federal Reserve until 1932, right? And you could see that the president of the Federal Reserve had no intervention whatsoever in the Pecora investigation and in the negotiations afterwards. So, the Federal Reserve, the central bank, then at that time did not do the same political work that that the central banks could do in 2008. And this is, in a sense, the irony. And this is something that I want to think about more because in my research so far, I always argue. This financial system requires a new type of central bank and requires a different uh, kind of framework. But I haven't thought enough about the politics of that, uh, of that framework in the sense of, okay, if, if, the central, if, if it was the political power of central banks that have maintained the system now, and they couldn't maintain it in, two, in, in 1933, maybe it's not such a good idea to have a market maker of last resort because it just simply perpetuates the, the structural factors further. Um, yeah. Can I follow up with something? Mm -hmm. Basically, I mean, one of the things sort of I always find very difficult is keeping apart central bank and treasury mm. in sort of the various operations. And I was just wondering, I mean, some of what you touched upon, how do you conceptualize of the power relations between treasury, particularly debt issuance, mm. and then what the central bank does? 
And do you see sort of significant changes both over time and between Fed, ECB, and Bank of England? I think that's a very good question. I'm, uh, I don't know if you've read my... Uh, I have a 2016 paper on, on the political economy of repo markets where I document the ways in which central banks uh, sort of were forced to take uh, an arm's length relationship with both the Treasury and the, the DMO. And the, the way in which I think about it has to include primary dealers in the story. Right? So primary dealers are very important because what primary dealers do is that they are, they are sort of the linchpin in the relationship between the central bank uh, and, and the treasury. Uh, and they have in the U.S., for example, that to me is a good example because they, they are mostly but not all of them settlement banks. Right? So they have direct access to the um, uh, balance sheet of the, of, of the Federal Reserve. Uh, and, and it's not very clear to me whether this relationship is always very symbiotic, right? Mm -hmm. Because if it were, then how do you explain the Eurozone? So the Eurozone is always, to me, the, the test for any kind of ideas of harmony with, between the fiscal arm and the monetary arm in, in the system, right? And in a sense, what the MMT says, that there is harmony. You know, you don't have to worry. But if you look at what, is, what has happened in, in the Eurozone, uh, you can separate that management from, um, from the central bank quite... Uh, abruptly in some ways um, and then uh, what happens in secondary markets becomes to me much more important than what happens in primary markets right? and this is where the, the primary dealers come into play because primary dealers are supposed to they, they have a social contract with the state uh, either, either with the treasury or can be, it can be with the central bank remind me to send you a presentation by Maria Canata who was okay. the the, she was for a very long time the, the director of the Italian Treasury, and for some reason, at some point, the Italian Treasury decided to do a mapping of, of the relationship between DMO, central banks, and and, uh, and treasuries. Uh, but the dynamics of so the sorry, I, I lost now. So the, the the dynamics of this relationship can be very different in different political economic context, contexts, and. Per, uh, what, how I think about it is what happens in secondary markets. So if we look at what happens in secondary markets, there is this, uh, the primary dealers are supposed to sort of commit themselves to the state uh, for the privileges of being primary dealers to provide quotes to buy or sell uh, uh, um, state uh, sovereign securities at any point in time. But we have various incidents where, where primary dealers don't do that. Actually, they bet against the state, like Citibank did in 2004, um, and in various other contexts. Uh, and uh, the same logic of, um, uh, I mean, and that maybe comes to the money view. You, it, liquidity cannot be provided in crisis by, by primary dealers, and that's where the question of liquidity is very important, and of market liquidity becomes very important for thinking, conceptualizing the relationship between uh, uh, the fiscal arm and the monetary arm. And I don't know if I want to call it there is a third debt management arm. It kind of complicates the story a little bit, but yeah. So and, and thinking about liquidity as a public good, right? Uh, conceptualizing it in this way, um, then then the question is who's providing it, and why do you rely on, on market participants to provide it? when very clearly those market participants have all sorts of other uh, relationships on their balance sheet that may basically go against this uh, sort of public good promise that they have made to the state. Um, now, the, then the, the, there are two interesting questions there that I would think about is how does in Europe T2S change this, if at all, like target to securities, which is uh, a way of, of providing faster settlement for securities so the cash leg and the securities leg can move together. Um, uh, that's one question. And the second question, if there are any significant innovations in, in the way in which secondary market trading operates, that somehow changes the political relationship between, I, I doubt it, but I haven't studied it enough. And uh, now I'm taking my lesson not to uh, make very grand claims about uh, the potential of technologies. We had a conversation <laughs> about my skepticism towards uh, uh, digital financial inclusion. Uh, but yeah. Do you think there's kind of an intrinsic tension, right? particularly in the US, right? Most primary dealers are also important prime, prime brokers for mm. a large part of the shadow banking system. Mm. Do you think they often run into tensions with those two functions? Or do you think they sort of sort of go hand in hand? Hmm, that's a good question. I haven't thought about it enough. Um, 
I'm, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm trying to think what would be the source of tensions between the two, except that uh, you sometimes... I mean, it is possible that as a, as a, as a broker-dealer, you are, or as a prime broker, you are uh, supporting um, or through your repo market operations, you're supporting a shorting of the U.S. Treasuries mm -hmm. that sort of goes against your mandate to make sure that the bid express remain narrow. But it's very difficult to look at in the context of the U.S. because U.S. is the safe asset issue of last resort, right? So in, if you think about the way in which we think about uh, international monetary systems as being hi hierarchical in the sense of currencies, I think it's much more interesting to think now in terms of international financial systems being hierarchical in terms of who is the provider of a, of a marketable or tradable security that you can run to in, in, in bad times. So I have not seen, I don't know where you would have, you'd find examples of this conflict kind of yeah. playing out in, in real life. I mean, you could, I, I mean, I was imagining you might see, I don't know, in the ECB in Greece, right, mm. where lots and lots of secondary market participants were short various Greek bonds, mm. but then the ECB had to decide whether to accept Greek bonds as collateral, as mm. repro collateral, right? And I mean... Okay, but that's different. Bit, that's a different kind of uh, yeah. relationship sure. as to... Is, is my balance sheet basically carrying some form of a conflict between two types of of commitments that I'm making, one to the state and the other to private act market actors. And maybe that's a good, I would look at the Citibank as an example of Citibank being a primary dealer for Italian treasuries in the uh, early 2000s, but also taking, um, yeah, maybe Salomon Brothers is also a good example of that. Have you looked at Salomon Brothers as an example? So I would look at Salomon Brothers because of the 1991 scandal, right? When Salomon Brothers used its position as a, as a primary dealer to basically corner the market for two-year U.S. treasuries in order to make more money out of it. Basically, they were, I don't know, it didn't make much sense in, to my mind. But this has, this has happened, so maybe comparing Salomon Brothers and Citibank, because Citibank speculated on Italian treasuries in 2004, trying to burn other smaller actors in the market, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a, some form of a scandal. And... and how, I mean, how does this matter? It would be interesting in terms of the political economy. Why does it matter if there is this conflict? If we can, if we can document it empirically in some ways or observe it, I mean, how would it matter in terms of the ways in the, the financial life of the state, maybe? Yeah. On a more conceptual level, I think that's also an interesting question here is how much of a charter list, a new charter list, are you? Yourself, mm. right? Because especially the primary dealers is a good example, right? The Fed, for example, relies on them to make markets, mm. as you said, right? And they make markets in different assets, different securities. And then how much control does the state have over the circulation of these money or credit claims, mm. at least in good times, right? So, but because I always have a bit of a problem with this kind of state market dichotomy that we mm. build up and the idea that money kind of flows around freely and then in the last instance, right, it's always the state coming back to the state and smacking it. Um, I wouldn't say that everything comes back to the state, but I would say that uh, the only agent that can meet commitments to convert at par, which is what makes money for me, right? So uh, in order for to think about money, I don't want, I, I usually don't think about money in the traditional Keynesian sense, right, of does it, is it a um, store of value, unit of account, means of um, settling uh, debt with each other because then it's kind of boring and then we can't move beyond bank deposits. Uh, that's the end of the conversation. But if you think about new forms of money as those com uh, promises to pay that somehow carry either a state or a private uh, mechanism for ensuring convertibility at par, that is, I make a promise that I will pay you 100 in two weeks' time and you have to believe me for these two weeks that I will pay you 100. Right? And you can make these promises very simple, like a bank deposit, or you can make them very complicated, like a repo contract. And to me, that's where the state is important, in, in, the, in the sense that it, that's the only actor I can think of that can validate those promises when liquidity disappears. Whether I think this, in terms of state market dichotomies... Not, that's not, the example mm, of the, the first crisis, right, in mm, the 30s, that you point out, and what if the central bank plays a different role, right? Mm. Because then you have much more, I guess, a collapse of shadow, shadow money, mm. right? Because then now 
essentially a point you made, right? It's backing way more forms of shadow money, more mm -hmm. processes behind it. Even though it did demonetize some, like I said, bank commercial papers mm. and stuff like this. Right? Oh, this yeah. is a very long conversation with Stefan. I dis yeah. disagree with his definition of shadow money, but uh, we're right. academics and we can, <laughs> we can use whatever definition we want. I think mm -hmm. without convertibility at par, and neither ABCP yeah. nor other short-term money market instruments, they don't have convertibility at par. So, not all credit products of money. <laughs> yes. Well, another question about mm -hmm. shadow money is what's your take, this is a bit of a random one, on foreign exchange swaps? Because mm. um, I feel like in many ways they take a similar role to repos in foreign exchange markets, right? And the BIS also recently had this paper, mm -hmm. right, about the missing debts and the kind of accounting conventions for mm -hmm. it. And, and is it a, mon a money market instrument or is it derivative? Like, how yeah. should we actually think about it? So I remember now writing a blog about it a while ago uh, where I disagreed with uh, Claudio Borio's interpretation that FX swaps are, are basically in the international space what a repo is in a, in a national monetary space. I, I don't think that, that you can make the, the claim that FX swaps are, are money. Uh, for reasons that have to do... Hmm, with one now? I don't know. Ah, yes. Yeah, so FX swaps basically do not... This is uh, becoming very, very complicated monetary theory, so <laughs> I, I apologize. But what what a repo transaction does? A repo transaction is a promise to pay back, back uh, to pay back some money that you have borrowed or you or you have created. Uh, a promise to pay that is backed by collateral, like a, a tradable security, like a bond. Uh, that and, and there is a convertibility at par promise there in the sense that every day, on the every day of this pr promise that I make. Uh, the market value of collateral is the same as uh, the promise, the amount of money that I promise to give back, right? And if it's not the same, then there are mechanisms to make sure that these two are always similar. Uh, so that, that to me, if you look at the banking system, I think that it's very important that banks that have an ability to create traditional bank deposits are the ones who are creating bank deposits and extinguishing bank deposits in order to create shadow money, right? So shadow money sort of appears into existence by basically eradicating some of the traditional money for a while. Whereas in FX swaps, that's not the case. In FX swaps, you always need to start with some money, that, with some asset that you have from somewhere in order to swap it into another currency. So I do not see the money creation part there. Yeah, um, because it's essentially like an interbank deposit swap or a reserve swap. Yes, because you have to swap things you already have. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can send, I don't know if you saw that blog, there is a very long explanation with lots of balance sheets. A truly balance sheet approach to FX swaps, and we are writing a paper with uh, my two colleagues at UWE um, uh, on on FX swaps, which may or may not clarify this issue, since we <laughs> strongly disagree about uh, uh, yeah. the. But I, I I personally don't think the the money there is money creation in the same way uh, in an FX swap, except if a bank does it. So and then it be, then then it's about basically a bank and through a repo, uh, but no, FX swaps are not money. Just another way of asking the question: Do you think there's an important par relation between onshore dollars and offshore dollars? Is that also a par relation in the par sense? Which is one of the things Sultan Pasha has been talking about, right? Mm. It's about this breakdown of labor rates and the onshore Can you say more about what do you mean by this power so, relation I mean, between... I mean, I, I don't want to think about power relation between money, but between the actors that are are, so, are generating them on their balance sheet. So I, I, mean, so I mean, this is Stefan, I always have this discussion, and, and he, that's like his thing, and I never quite completely understand it. Right? So he, he thinks, right, there's so through various mechanisms, right, there's dollar creation going on in London and dollar creation going on in New York by mm -hmm. private institutions and some central bank mechanisms basically sort of have to be in place to make sure that those dollars are equal to one another, right? So that there is an important onshore, offshore dynamic. So you have sort of, you know, you have the, obviously the international hierarchy, but basically the international hierarchy has sort of two dimensions, right? So you have dollar creations in the US, in commercial money, in shadow money, but then you have also, I mean, only the dollar, right? You have dollar creation abroad, mm. and those things also need to be equal. So essentially, you have another set of relations. 
and I, I don't know what to think about. Yeah, I, I, I would suggest, and I usually don't do this, but uh, I would suggest that you... I, have you seen Milton Friedman's paper on the offshore... Uh, ban- uh, money creation. I would, never, I would never guess that you would send me to a Milton Friedman paper. <laughs> no, I would never guess that. Say, uh, Milton Friedman was a, an evil person, but, but he, I think, I think he understood. Right. So reading that paper makes me think that he understood the finance, and he had a balance sheet approach. Now thinking about it now, uh, so the, he's re- he wrote a paper on on let's say, euro-dollar uh, markets. And where, what I would say is that it's very difficult to create offshore dollars without having an onshore leg onto it on the balance sheet of the central bank, right? Because, okay, I, I as a bank, in theory, if, if the regulator doesn't say to me, I'm in London, if the regulator doesn't say to me, you can't create euro-dollars, I mean, I can create euro-dollars, I can create an asset that is called, this is your loan in dollars, I can create a deposit that says this is a, your deposit in dollars. But then the moment that whoever gets this uh, presence on my balance sheet wants to use this dollar deposit, I need to, to use my correspondent bank in New York to transfer, to settle my debts towards the new bank or whoever this client of mine is paying. I have to settle it in uh, obligations of the U.S. state. So it's not that there is a, a, a power relationship there. There is, to start with, a balance sheet relationship. Now, how can this become a power relationship? I haven't thought about it a lot, but I'm, I'm not sure what Stefan means by it. But no, I, no, no, power. power. A power. I'm so interested in power. No, no, sorry, I'm sorry. going off on a tangent. Of no, no, but I mean, interesting to hear. No, power relationship. Sorry. Power relationship between onshore and offshore. I think the point is as far as Posture makes it is that mm. funding rates are diverging, right? Mm. Because the, the Fed essentially is not using swap lines on a continuous basis to ease funding conditions in offshore markets and because arbitrage is kind of contained a bit yeah. or limited under Basel, mm. essentially funding rate have been diverging. And you said there's a breakdown of the power relationship between mm. funding offshore or onshore. I'm not sure I agree with that because to me power relationship means if I have if I hold I'm an American citizen or I don't know, a Saudi Arabia whatever chic that that is holding a dollar deposit in London can I trust that this the bank will give me my dollars back if I want to uh, at parity? That is to me a power relationship. Well, how much money uh, the bank has to pay me in order to for me to keep that deposit there? So what is the financing rate? I don't. I think that's a, a separate question, and I think that has to do a lot with the specific makeup of whatever is happening in all sorts of other funding markets. Uh, so I wouldn't impute so much uh, as Pojar does on onto this. Onto this part, but but this is this is an interesting question, and and it's an, if you think about, I wouldn't study it so much in relationship to the U.S. dollar, but I would study it, for example, in the relationship between euro deposits in Eastern Europe or Swiss franc deposits in Eastern Europe and the ECB or the or the Swiss Central Bank, because there you can see very different relationships. So the European Central Bank says to the Romanian Central Bank and to the Hungarian Central Bank. Oh well, I'm sorry. You're, you let your banks give credit in in euros. Uh, I'm sorry that uh, your financing uh, disappears. Uh, I can I can let you borrow from me uh, either as a state as a state, but you're you're going to borrow from me on the terms of a commercial bank, which is a repo loan uh, or a repo um, contract with a euro collateral. Whereas the Swiss central bank says. Everybody come to me. Uh, I'm going to treat you like your, your uh, my own very friendly bank. So it, you, you, there are different ways in which this convertibility plays out, depending on the on the or part convertibility plays out plays out depending on on the specific political economy of the of the region or the central bank uh, that owns the currency. But I don't know. Yeah, that that's all. Um, we've really been racing through this hour, so and I've talked a lot, so we're talking a bit. So I'd like to invite everyone else to ask questions if you have. Yeah. Back. So no, it's it's interesting to hear all about you know the ways in which the state through uh, through central banks has acted in this enormously powerful executive way in quite an ad hoc way as well. I wonder if we could like zoom out a bit and say what does that really kind of inform us about this. So it's sort of broad IPE narrative about neoliberalism being the small state or the absence of, of kind of 
of kind of executive ad hoc, ad hoc state action because the state has to be restrained by all these sort of rules and sort of ordo ordo liberalism as well the kind of reign of rules over ad hoc executive action but it, it doesn't seem to be that's how it's worked out in reality so I wonder if you could just mm. say something about that so I will I will just say the way in which I approach neoliberalism in in my in my PhD thesis and in the book that I out of my PhD thesis went much more towards economic geography literature than uh, the standard IP literature. And the economic geography literature from Peck and Tickle, I'm sorry, I have to quote His Holiness uh, Adam Tickle. Uh, but, uh, and I, I do not do this anymore, but then I did that, that at the time. Uh, does everybody follow this joke? Or I'm making, yeah. yes, okay, good. Um, so they, were, they conceptualized neoliberalism as this rollback and rollout. Mm -hmm. uh, where rollback is basically you repress, uh, I would argue, the, the social democratic welfare arm of the state, uh, but, and, but you strengthen the, I don't know, capture the repressive arm of the state in some ways or another in order to construct new markets. And this is what, what I would argue is happening now. The, if we conceptualize neoliberalism as, as a social contract that is evolving in some ways for a particular reason, and to me that particular reason is to support the, the creation and the preservation of, uh, of uh, the value of new financial assets, mm. then, yeah, this is not a story of small state. This is actually a story of, of, in a sense, a much bigger kind of state that is functional to, to, functional to financial capitalism, but is not functional to regular human beings, and this is why the fascists are coming, because they also worked out that, that there is an opening for them to, to say, well, this kind of state, we can, we can provide a better kind of state. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, yeah, I guess, don't read IP literature. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I have lots of questions, questions, so I can, I'm happy to keep going, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I have a question. Um, you, you just mentioned, uh, which sounds really interesting, you just mentioned the, um, the, the different central banks in different countries um, having different relationships. Um, I was wondering, how far does that play into, there's this whole discourse, I think the legal accounting journal is doing that as well, with um, the currency hierarchies. Mm -hmm. um, and how far... Do you see that playing off in the central banking sphere as well? That, um, yeah. How would you connect these two discourses? Mm. Well, I think that there is. I mean, if you think about, uh, I like the idea of of, of dependent financialization uh, as a story about how central banks in the periphery of global finance are both. Or, or sort of struggling to um, sort of manage the way in which their financial system or, or the economy connects to the global financial cycle, right? Mm -hmm. So I usually start from the global financial cycle to think about this. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are very different ways in which periphery central banks uh, are playing out this political game, right? So, so in a sense, I think we need a, a more, much more careful taxonomy of what is happening in the periphery. It's not that everybody plays the same game. So, for example, the Indian central bank is not playing the same game towards uh, whatever the hegemon or global finance. I would prefer to towards the global finance than, than the Romanian central bank. So for the Romanian central bank, for a very long time, the, 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 the political strategy was privatize the banking system to foreign-owned banks, uh, work with them in order to uh, uh, encourage them to connect the, the economy to global finance to help you achieve your inflation targeting mandate, right? Because basically it was the central bank was encouraging banks to bring capital in. Uh, these capital inflows were appreciating the currency, reducing the inflation, but you have, very nice, you have the inflation target uh, there. Uh, but then there are moments in which this relationship is fracturing. So that, the example again for Romania, but there can, there can be many others. In 2008, when the global financial crisis threatens to hit Romania, um, we have for the first time in the political sphere the central bank coming out and saying, uh, we have a speculative attack going on. It's the guys from London, like literally like this. It said the guys from London are coming for us, and they're coming for us using the, the local banking system as pawns to advance in, the, in this war. Uh, so that, that made me, for a while, uh, the, the situation was very conf 
interesting and very conflicting in, in a public way because these mm -hmm. fights have, are always playing out somewhere or another in, in the back room. Uh, and uh, it, it demonstrates this kind of the fragility of the institutional arrangement that we have now in periphery countries in the ways in which central banks are both technocrats that are committed to inflation targeting but very clear on some level that there is this trade-off between the, the, the monetary autonomy of the central bank and uh, free capital flows, right? So to me, it's interesting, for example, why is it that everybody now in international financial institutions is talking about the global financial cycle? Like, what is the interest to say that the global financial cycle is killing your uh, monetary policy effectiveness if you don't manage capital? The IMF is talking about it, the BIS. What, what, why at this point, right? Uh, in, in a sense... My story is that financial globalization is alive and well, but it's really mutating in terms of the way in which it plays out politically. Because before, the people used to say, like, okay, whatever, no, it doesn't matter. You let capital free, free, flow freely, everybody's happy because efficiency gains. And now it's not like this. It's like there is a little bit of a crazy monster there, and we have to be careful how we deal with it. And, and um, yeah. So, so you can connect these two, right, in terms of the political economy of what does it mean to be uh, a central bank in, in the periphery of global finance, because the geography of, of uh, the economic geography of, or the financial geography of integration in global financial cycles is not similar everywhere. Um, so I had one sort of point I, yeah, I want to win it Why are you at um, with this relation between money and time? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because it's often linked to you know uncertainty. Like there's this this quote in a world without uncertainty, there would be no need for money. Mm. So how do you in your your definition of moneyness, what's how does that relate to uncertainty? So to me, moneyness is about uh, uh, the promise to convert, the credibility of the promise to converted part that is created more either publicly or privately, uh, and what the way that I'm thinking about monetary time is the way in which you organize relationships on balance sheets in in terms of time, in order to in order to sort of circumvent the need for a public guarantee, right? And, and my story is, if I remember correctly, because I haven't worked on this for a year, which makes me feel guilty now, uh, my story is that basically any new attempt to generate moneyness in either a kind of shadow money sense or all, all sorts of other ways of generating moneyness has to come with shrinking monetary time to a shorter unit. I'm thinking the day now, but but there is technological innovation that is now shrinking monetary time to seconds or to, to minutes in the way in which convertibility is created on balance sheets, right? Because of, uh, for example, I think in P2S that's a, that is possible. So I'm thinking of how do you order time on balance sheets for convertibility to, or for moneyness to be, to be constructed by circumventing the balance sheet of the sovereign. That, to me, is the important thing. Because the balance sheet of the sovereign comes with its own temporality, and the sovereign wants to impose that temporality on you if it is to give you a, a guarantee. So, yeah, this is as far as I got. Does it make any sense? Yeah, I have to think about Because to me, uncertainty is, is a very... I mean, it, it's very clear that is. It, it is very intuitive, right? We run to money, to kind of liquid forms of promises when we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but uncertainty is doing a lot of a lot of heavy lifting for things that we do not know. So there is a black box to me of what, is, what does uncertainty mean in relationship to monetary time? Like, how are you uncertain? For how long? And what do you do about it? And not only in a simple Keynesian but isn't, sense. Isn't the balance sheet um, temporal? Isn't that like more risk? Than Okay, so you're going towards the distinction between risk and uncertainty. Yeah. I'm not sure that's so... I mean, that distinction applies to the, the, the mechanisms for creating and preserving convertibility at par, and these mechanisms could be sometimes more uncertain than risky, let's put it this way, or, or your, your view of them. But I'm not sure that this is a relevant distinction here. Okay. I have to think about it. 
some, I mean, it links to investment, but very vaguely, is I once, I once basically had to defend sort of the money during the balance approach to somebody, and basically they, their claim was that there's something very weird going on here, because there's essentially two types of liabilities, right? There's the liabilities of everybody else, and then there is currency or money as a liability of the central bank, which is not really a liability. Oh, is this Eric Lonergan? Yes. Yes. And I was unable to really respond, so I was just wondering, and then as I started thinking about it more, I was like, yeah, maybe there is something weird going on. So I was just wondering, I mean, it seems you know, central bank liability is different than any other liability. So yes. why are we calling it both liabilities, and what does this mean for how money is conceptualized? So I would say that, I mean, the central bank liability is different than anybody else's because it is this in in a world in a I don't know in a closed economy setting. So let's not think about FX swaps for a second. In a closed economy setting, it is the liability that that has the single most. It, I mean, it has the single most important credible promise behind it, right? And it is the liability that allows for a private banking system to operate, right? Because private banks, and this is the experience, for example, of, of the US banking system before the creation of the Federal Reserve is very instructive of how difficult it is to coordinate, to create a, a, a settlement asset for the banking system uh, without a central bank. So I'm not very, I mean, I'm not very sure that this distinction between the, the, the liabilities of the central bank and the liabilities of the banking system per, per se I don't know why. I, I know Eric is uh, very, yeah, very. What very do you say to Eric when I, you're on a panel with him? I have not been on a panel, okay. and I'm not going to have this conversation. <laughs> uh, but I'm, 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 I think that to conceptualize money as hierarchical is very important, right? Uh, it's very important because it allows us to think about the ways in which the, the financial system is trying to avoid the balance sheet of the sovereign, and whether. Uh, the central bank has a liability or not, to me, it's not as important as the banking system has an asset in, in which to settle debts to each other. And that is a public asset issued by the central bank. It could be gold, or it could be barrels of cash, but okay, this is not the world we live in, so it's a bit of a pointless conversation. Uh, so this, the fact that there is a publicly issued asset for the commercial banking system in which uh, uh, payments are settled, and, and which, in a sense, structures the rest of the... Um, of the claims with with aspirations to money or that, that claim to have some moneyness, that to me is the is the important thing, right? And that that is where the even the, the questions about monetary time come from there because the temporality of the balance sheet of the central bank becomes very important for the way in which the temporality of all <laughs> other types of claims are, are organized. And and a very good example of that that is also going to appear somewhere in my, in my book in the future is, um, is the way in which uh, we have had the, Europe, the, the US repo market moving uh, or concentrating increasingly on the three-party repo, uh, in the three-party repo space on the balance sheet of two settlement banks whose repo activities was, I don't know, on order of magnitude of 10, 20 times higher than their actual the regular balance sheet, right? So these guys were doing in settlement space what they were not doing in their sort of regular banking space or, the, or even prime broker in money, uh, money market space. And why is that? And my, my story in, the, in, in this paper and chapter is that uh, JP Morgan and um, Bonnie Mellon, Bank of New York uh, Mellon, they, they became the vehicles through which the, the financial system, particularly the shadow banking system, could could fight back against the temporality of the balance sheet of the central bank because of, and, and if you think about the debates on um, the unwind of three-party repo operations in the morning and the rewinding in the evening, right? This is exactly, to me, an example that I have to simplify this in some way so it makes sense to people. Uh, this is the, exactly the way in which the, there is a fight between the, the, the temporality of, of state money and the temporality of, of private money. Um, so that is what matters to me. There is, there is. You have to either go to the balance sheet of the sovereign, or if you don't want to go to the balance sheet of the sovereign, you have to come up with all sorts of very complicated in, uh, um, temporal mechanisms for creating or for substituting 
the balance sheet of the sovereign. And they have to, they eventually run into crisis because you, there is no private actor can preserve at par on demand uh, in, during bad times. It can't without the help of the sovereign. Could you, could you remind us about why they would want to, to avoid the balance sheet of the central bank? So in the 1980s, they, they wanted to, so in general, you want to avoid the balance sheet of the sovereign because the sovereign says, okay, you want my balance sheet, uh, you have to play by my rules. Okay, right? yeah. so it's like so, less, less profitable. Say again? So it's like, uh, yeah. it's more expensive. Basically, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the profit incentive is the incentive that is moving the, the financial system to me and, and the uh, pri- private money creation. So for them, it was in the 1980s, it's very clear. The, in the early 1990s, you know, this is uh, the age of, let's bring inflation down, the age of monetarism, the age of Volcker coming in. And basically what they're saying is like, if we look at intraday, and this is very interesting as an example of temporality, is the debates in the Federal Reserve around intraday credit. They discovered that basically the intraday uh, lending to the to the, uh, the settlement banks is much bigger than the balance sheet uh, at the end of the at the end of the day, right? And if you're a monetarist, you think, like, what is going on? Why do I have so many reserves in the system during the day and I don't have them at night? Mm-hmm. And do I really want to have them during the day? No, uh, I will make you pay for it. The moment that the Federal Reserve says I will make you pay for it, everybody moves towards the balance sheet of the three-party repo actors because they, there you can basically uh, the three-party repo actor doesn't change his balance sheet, it just changes the name on the liability or on the asset, right? So you can pay each other through JP Morgan instead of paying each other through the uh, Federal Reserve. And we have to finish, all? Yeah, we have to finish. I have to, <laughs> can, I, can I pee before <laughs> I do this again? <laughs> Thank you so much. This was amazing. And you yeah? have a lot of words indeed. <laughs> and this is really incredible yeah thank you so much for this. no my pleasure and, and if you want to I can elaborate this at some point uh, email me or even better uh, talk to me on Twitter because <laughs> this is where I live <laughs> and thank you, yes, thank you.